Everybody glad you're here, those joining us online. We love you guys. I love everybody. You guys are so easy to love. I thank God for you. Thank God that we're in this together, doing life and love and Jesus together. There's nothing like it. And I've come this morning with uh, good news and bad news. There's this guy, he goes skydiving. Good news is when he jumps out of the airplane, he's got a parachute. Bad news is parachute doesn't work. Good news is there's a haystack down below. Bad news is there's a pitchfork in the haystack. Good news is he misses the pitchfork. Bad news is he misses the haystack. Okay, doctor walks into a patient's hospital room and says, I've got good news and bad news. Patient says, give me the good news. The doctor says, you only have 24 hours to live. The patient said, well, what would the bad news be? Doctor said, I was supposed to tell you yesterday. <laughs> okay. I've got good news and bad news. Doctor walks into a hospital room, says to the patient, I- I've got good news and bad news. The patient says, give me the bad news. The doctor says, you've only got six months to live. The patient says, well, what could possibly be the good news? The doctor says, well, I have this uh, spinster sister. She's never been married. If you marry her, six years will feel like six, six months of Six months will feel like six years. Okay, we're done joking. Okay, but what I wanted to get to, there was an ultimate bad news, and that is our broken world um, is a bad news world. And uh, much that goes on is just flat out evil. That's the ultimate bad news. But there's a tension. I mean, on the one hand, we live in a bad news world and the bad news often is, is just evil. But on the other hand, there's a good news God. That's the ultimate good news. We have a good news God who is better than we deserve or than we ever dreamed. He is a good God. But it provokes some questions. This evil on the one hand and this goodness of God on the other. I mean, um, if God is so good, why is there so much evil? And I mean, what is the source of all this evil? And if God is good, why does he allow evil at all to exist? And if God is so good, why does he just smash it out of existence right now? Well, we're, we're gonna wrestle with a few of these honest questions this morning. The truth is we're aiming toward Easter. Begin now to pray for your friends and family that they would be responsive to you to join you here. But as we aim at Easter, we're going back to the very beginning. First book in the Bible, book of Genesis, the book of beginning. And there we get to lean in on a good news, bad news conversation between God and the first humans. Here's the setting. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So right from the get-go with creation, we have a good news tree, tree of life, and we have a bad news tree, tree of death. One gives peace, tree of life. One is poison. It'll kill you, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a choice. It wasn't just a choice for Adam and Eve. It's a choice for you and me. Which do we choose? Tree of life or the poison tree, the tree of death? So 
God offers, he continues his good news conversation with a good news, bad news warning. Here we go in the word of God book. Genesis says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned, you may freely, say freely, Freely. like you're on caffeine, say freely. Freely. Yeah, freely. This, everything in this text hangs on that word. And the next emphatic word, the Lord God placed the man in the garden to tend it, watch over it. And the Lord God warned, you may freely eat the fruit of every, say every. every. You see how good God is? You can freely enjoy the fruit of every, every, every tree. But God says, I gotta warn you, don't run with scissors. Don't play with fire. Look both ways before you cross the street and don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And so this is like goodness of God, goodness of God, goodness of God, goodness of God just piles up in the first two chapters of the Bible. In fact, here's how the last verse of chapter two concludes the first two chapters with these words. The two of them, the man and woman, Adam and Eve, were naked and they felt no shame. Now all the men in the room were like, man, chapter two ends cool. They're both naked. And all the women are like, chapter two ends awesome. They feel no shame. But it's at that moment that an ugly, consuming evil crashes into the garden. The last book of the Bible explains this way. Book of Revelation reads, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. It wasn't even a fight. They were no match for Michael. They were cleared out of heaven. Not a sign of them left. The great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, who leads you astray, who leads me astray, who leads the whole world astray. He's thrown out. His angels are thrown out with him, thrown down to earth. So crashing into Eden, into perfection, into the goodness of God is the ancient source of all evil, Satan. In fact, the very first two words of chapter three are this, the serpent. I see him slithering up to Eve. She is mesmerized, not by the serpent. She's mesmerized by the tree, not the tree of life. She could eat of it and never get sick. Adam could eat of it and never suffer, never feel pain, never be distressed, never be anxious, never be depressed. Just live forever. They could go on looking like Ken and Barbie forever. Could have. No, she is mesmerized by the tree of death, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Without notice, the serpent slithers up to her and hisses over her soul. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, what Satan was doing with Eve is what he does with us every day. He just kind of whispers over our soul. 
He takes a sliver of God, a sliver of the truth, and twists it into an ugly, sinister, deadly lie. If we eat the lie, we die. And so Eve responds because what we tend to do when Satan lies to us is what she does. She begins to corrupt the truth herself. Look what she says. And Eve said to the serpent, hey, we may eat from the trees in the garden. Oh my gosh, she left out the two most important words that point to the goodness of God. Here's what God said, you may freely eat of every tree. She lives, leaves all that out and she continues to talk. And as she talks, she continues to make God look bad. Look at the text. Well, Eve speaking to Satan says, uh, God did say, um, you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, did God say don't touch it? She's making stuff up. Maybe in my imagination, Satan is slithering up the tree and wrapping himself around a piece of the fruit or about to and she said, hey, God said don't touch it or you will die. You see, when you swallow one lie of Satan, he just keeps feeding you more lies. He's a still small voice in your head. And we all have to figure out when it's him that's seducing us down a hurtful, hateful path that is gonna lead to deep pain in our lives. You see, when we believe the lies of Satan, we, we lose trust in the goodness of God, and we end up choosing evil over, over good. If we believed Satan's lies about our money, as opposed to the truth of God about our money, we stop trusting God's goodness regarding our finances. When we believe Satan's lies about our spouse or our kids or our friends, we stop trusting God his goodness regarding our parenting, our marriage, our friendships. When we believe the lies of Satan about our emotions, we stop trusting the goodness of God. You can put anything in that blank. We never want to stop trusting God's goodness for our emotions. So Satan, he just continues to feed her lies. She bought one lie, he feeds her another, he feeds her more. Here's what he says. Hey, come on. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Come on, God knows when you eat from it. Oh my gosh, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. So Eve is standing where we've all stood. It's a defining moment. It's like a crossroads. Two possible paths diverting from each other. One leads to life, the other leads to death. I believe as Satan is lying to her or you or me, at the very same time, God is whispering, trust me, trust my goodness. Don't go down that path. Don't choose what's gonna kill you. Choose life. Choose what gives hope. Choose what gives peace. Choose what gives joy. Choose what gives love. Choose life. I believe that all the time, I think Satan never lets up on us. And I believe that God never stops wooing us. 
But Eve ignores the voice of God, just as I have, just as you have, and she took the fruit. Scripture says she took some fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And oh my gosh, that first bite, man, juice running down their chins. It was so intoxicating, so much pleasure, so delicious, unadulterated, pure pleasure until they swallowed. And then it was like a red hot knife got stuck in their gut and just started ripping them up on the inside, tearing them apart. I mean, in my imagination, I see them dropping to their knees, keeling over, caught in the throes of violent vomiting as they try to puke the sin out of themselves. That's you and me, isn't it? Have you ever said, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? I wish I could take back my words. I wish I could undo what I've done. That was them. And when they could puke no more, here's what happened. Their eyes were opened, not by the fruit, but by their sin. Their eyes were opened and they fell. First time in human experience, the negative, disturbing experience of shame they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so what did they do? They sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. They're trying to cover their shame. We do the same thing. We don't use fig leaves. Um, maybe we drink too much. The shame hurts to try to salve the pain of the shame. We drink, we overdrink, we overeat. We overshop, we over, any, over anything to cover our pain. Sometimes we use our arrogance, like I'm big and bad and all that to cover our shame. It's all a front to hide our shame. We want our anger to cover up our shame. We, 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 we become controlling to cover our shame. Whatever it takes to salve the shame, I mean, drugs, Porn. The sad thing is it's cyclic. Whatever we do to cover our shame, it just creates more shame. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why? Why can't I stop? Why can't I change? It's all fig leaf stuff. And fig leaf stuff will never cover our shame. So what can I do? What can I possibly do to shed my shame? What, what, what can you do to, to be rid of your shame so that it stops haunting our days and, and, and disturbing our nights and causing us to lose sleep and provoking just self-destructive behaviors and, and bringing hurtful stuff out of us toward those we love? How do we get rid of the shame? What can I do? What can you do? Friends, you, I, we can do nothing. It's what God does. It's what God wants to do in you this morning. He wants to free you of your shame. And God always takes the initiative. When, when, when you have done the worst, God is drawn towards you. He, he doesn't blow you off, go away, find you disappointing. When you've said the worst, when you are at your ugliest and you know you're guilty, God is irresistible. He always takes the initiative. Why? Because if he can help you 
Get rid of your shame. He will restore you. You see, your sin separates you from God. Often your sin will separate you from other people. And so God takes the initiative to restore you to himself, into right relationship with himself. He'll take the initiative to, to try to restore relationships. So God is always in pursuit of us, always takes the initiative to remove, to erase, to completely obliterate our shame. And it can happen for you this morning. I'm gonna tell you how it happened for Adam and Eve, but first let me tell you, I can't give you this whole story today. So I'd encourage you to grab one of the study guides on your way out, and every day you can get the whole story and go deeper into the whole story. But let me fast forward to the climatic conclusion of this moment as God erases shame from Adam and Eve. Here's the scripture. The Bible says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Where do you get garments of skin? Well, from dead animals. So in my imagination, as Adam and Eve stand before a holy, holy, holy God, covered in shame, terrified. I mean, I believe they are physically trembling before God because they know they deserve for God to strike them dead. They sin, they die, that's what they're waiting for. But I believe in that moment, in fact, maybe it would be good for all of us to step into that moment with them in their shame, with our shame. But in that moment, I believe some lambs wander into the garden. And as the instant, the very instant that Adam and Eve see the lambs, God just suddenly, violently slaughters the lambs. Blood just goes everywhere. Adam and Eve freak out. They are appalled. They have no frame of reference for violence or bloodletting or death. What's going on? We sin, not the lambs. The lambs are innocent. Why did they have to die? I think there's a moment then as God strips them of their fig leaves. The best thing that could happen to me today, the best thing that could happen to you today is that you just be stripped of all your fig leaf stuff so God can deal with your shame. I think for them, as he strips them of their fig leaves, they get it. The lambs died in their place so they could live. They're still living. The, the, the lambs were like substitutes who took the punishment Adam and Eve deserve for their sin. They sinned. They should die. The lambs died in their place. The innocent took the punishment of the guilty. Now, friends, this is not some lesson from ancient history. This is all meant to point us to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away your sin, who takes away my sin. And as God dressed them in what I believe is lamb skins because of Jesus, I believe something miraculous, something supernatural happened within them that God wants to have happen within you. I believe as God clothed them in lambskins, it just went off in them. We're forgiven. We're not going to be punished. God is not a punishing God. 
I mean, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Someone has to die. And it points us to Jesus, a sinless substitute who did no sin and knew no sin, who took our place on the cross and got the punishment we deserve for our sin. I believe that as God dressed Adam and Eve in lambskins, they felt fully forgiven. They felt completely cleansed of all their guilt and shame. They felt moved by the absolute goodness of God. The only trustworthy quality in the whole world is the goodness of God for them and for us. There were two trees in the garden, tree of life and tree of death, and Adam and Eve chose the wrong tree, but God provides a third tree. It's not in the garden. It was spiked to a garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago where Jesus died in our place as our substitute for our sin. He bore all the penalty, all the consequence, all the punishment we deserve. It all fell on Jesus. In fact, the word of God says this about the tree of Jesus. Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. By his wounds, we are healed. He's the wounded one. How do we get healed? It's by his shed blood that we get cleansed of all our shame. God dressed Adam and Eve as an unmistakable indication, fully forgiven, cleansed of all guilt and shame. You get a fresh start. You get a clean slate. You get a new tomorrow. You get new life. In the same way he clothed them, he clothes us in Christ when we are baptized. Here's what the word of God says. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. So we're having a big deal baptism weekend on Easter. People will be baptized next weekend and be clothed in Christ. Their sins washed away, cleansed of all guilt and shame by the mighty work of Jesus on the cross and his victory over hell, death, and the grave as he is our risen Lord and Savior. Could I pray over you about your shame right now? Would you bow with me, please? Our Father and our God, we come humbly before you saying, we admit we're guilty. We did it. We said it. We ate the wrong fruit from the wrong tree. What were we thinking? What have we done? Oh God, we come to you humbly for forgiveness. We come to you humbly trusting in your goodness that you will erase all the shame and make us new as we surrender our lives to Jesus, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Now typically, at this point in the service, I would invite you uh, to the front for me to pray with you, our staff to serve you and whatever way we could. But today I'd like for you to invite me, um, invite me forward. I have probably the hardest message I've ever um, had to deliver um, to you in the 40 some years I've been the pastor here. Um, but maybe I can start with you like I did with our leadership uh, this week by, let me just ask, how many of you guys are married or you've been married? Just raise your hands. 
okay? Maybe you haven't been married, but you can think about it. Imagine what it would be like. Um, what if, here's the question. Uh, what, what if you knew you only had maybe uh, a year and eight months of good life left with the one you love, your spouse? I've had to wrestle with that question for um, the last six weeks. You see, for a few years now, my Debbie has struggled with Alzheimer's disease. And um, you know, it's a progressive disease and we're in a stage right now that typically on average lasts uh, three years. And we're about a year and four months into it. I became aware of that about six weeks ago, and so I've been praying, 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 and going to answer the question, what do you do if you know you only have another year and eight months of good life? It's not like death is coming in, a, but it goes in stages, and Deb and I right now, we're in a real good place, and she's, she's good. If she sees you at Walmart, she'll hug you, pray over you. Um, she's a delight to be with, and, and She's better when she's with me. And so I've decided if I have a year and eight months, if God gives us two years, it's only his grace. We praise him. We'll take it with all the greed in our hearts for more together. Um, but for my answer to that question, if I only have a year and eight months, I choose it to spend it with my wife as much as possible. And so... That might provoke in you another question. What does that mean for uh, your leadership ministry here um, at our church? Well, um, it means that I'm going to step down as the lead pastor of this church uh, and away from my role on our staff so I can be... Um, always available to my Debbie. Uh, now, it's not going to be all that disruptive to you. I preach three times a month unless there's five weeks in a month, and then I preach four, and Jake uh, preaches the other one. And so what will happen now, I'll be back here every week. I'm sorry for those of you I didn't get to greet personally. Um, today, I'll start with you guys next week. I'll be back next week. I'll preach next week. I'll be back on Easter I will preach on Easter and I will be here every week, even when I'm not preaching. I will be here every week to greet you, to hug you, to give you a handshake and to pray with you and serve you in whatever, just as I have for years and years. That will happen every weekend, no matter what. But I will only be preaching twice a month. If a month has five weekends, Jake will preach the other three weekends. Typically, the other months, I'll preach twice, Jake will preach twice. I have full confidence in Jake because of how you respond to him. I had a friend this week tell me he just has such a presence when he preaches and I know it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Wherever I go, um, over and over again, whether it's in church or out in the community, um, people rave to me about Jake's preaching 
And so I am fully confident that you will continue to be served by he and I, that we will reveal God's word to you and that the preaching will be anointed uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, now, my Debbie's not here today. She typically worships on Saturday night, but she didn't want to be here today because this is really hard and um, feels humiliating. So when you see her, please don't say, don't talk about the disease. Don't say, I'm so sorry. Don't tell me, I'm so sorry. Debbie says that sympathy's worse than the sickness. So when you see us, if we, you greet us at Walmart or here at church, um, just say, hey, God is good. God is so faithful. That's what we believe. That's what we're holding, holding on to. And so please don't, don't feel sorry for us. When you see my wife, treat her with dignity and love. Um, if you don't act to hug her first, she'll probably hug you. And um, we are grateful uh, for uh, the years that we've been able to uh, serve together here. If my Debbie wants to come and continue to serve, I'll bring her and work in the church office. But the weeks I don't preach, um, I'll work from home or be at home. I'll work from home in the weeks I do preach so I can be with her. And the weeks I don't preach, I'll just be totally focused on her. Um, scripture says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, we always thought, Deb and I, we both can remember the moment when God called us to serve this church. It's almost 42 years ago. I was in the spring and we knew that we were supposed to come here, serve this church, this community. And I always thought that God would, there would be, when his time was right, he would call me away from, um, serving as a lead pastor. But now here's the deal. I fully believe and am convinced that my primary call in the ministry is to serve my wife. God's still calling me to preach, so I'll be here a couple of times a month. And the number one ministry in my life now is, is my Debbie. So Eric is going to come and pray, and um, I'm just going to leave right now because I don't feel like talking to anybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Central Wire podcast. Be sure to stay connected with us at centralwire.com, and have a great week.